Optus outage chaos, new RBA just like the old RBA, and the good news is from America. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me is the great, the glorious, the best-selling playwright <laughs> of A Fool in Love, soon to be available to the general public at the Sydney Theatre Company. Tickets on sale from the 6th of December. 7th. Individual of- tickets on sale. But if you want to beat the crowds, you can buy a subscription package to the Sydney Theatre Company and obviously choose to go to my play in that. We use it. There's a considerable saving if you book a minimum of three shows, and you can do that right now. Do that right now. Get online, do that while you're listening to this podcast. And pick a couple of other shows and support Australian theatre, which you should do anyway, because it's great. If you haven't recognised her voice, that is in fact Van Patten, my wife and your friend. Oh, hello. Hello, hello Ben Davison, who I'm married to and I live with. How are you, Van? Well, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my physiotherapist, Damien, and as a means of apology for bursting into tears when he was trying to fix my shoulder this morning. Yeah, poor Damien. We were having a lovely conversation about macroeconomics and then it just went to a very traumatised place. But my shoulder is feeling a lot better. Well, it's good news. Look, Van, this episode might be a little shorter than normal, might be a little longer. We never really know. People think these are really heavily scripted, these episodes. I, I love that. I love that people think this is heavily scripted. My friends, let me tell you, as a professional scriptwriter in this relationship, no. 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 We are, of course, going to talk about the big news of the day, which threatens to become big news um, of the week, which really compounds um, a year of horror for the uh, Singtel-owned telecommunications company Optus. Oh, yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but I woke up this morning to the dulcet tones of my husband going, there's a problem with the internet. There's a problem with the internet. I've got a meeting at 9 o'clock. There's a problem with the internet. Unable to repair it with the force of my mind, I gently investigated what could be going on. We had a storm around these parts last night and we thought that as, I mean, we live in the country, as often happens, that the storm takes out a mobile phone tower and we lose reception. But not only was the internet down at our house, but Ben's phone was down. Poor choice in uh, ISP. Benjamin. Indeed. And, but I had Telstrip, but he was the irony. I had a meeting at nine o'clock. So I ended up sending a flurry of text messages to Ben's various employers going, oh, the internet seems to be down. And that's how we found out that Optus was mishmush. Yes, it has been, as that's you That's a technical term, mishmush. Mishmush uh, all day. Continues to be mishmush as we speak. We are recording the week on Wednesday by tethering a laptop to your Telstra connected phone. Should point out we are not paid by Telstra in any way, shape or form uh, for uh, this, uh, nor in fact were we paid by Optus. Uh, in fact, not even serviced properly by Optus. No, not even serviced properly by Optus as it turns out. It has been an absolute disaster. Like 4am apparently the outage started and it lasted for how long? Like a solid eight hours. Then they sort of started patching it back together. It could be weeks until everything is fixed. There was, and this may be apocryphal, but there was a story going around the internet that the CEO had been phoned by the media to go, what's going on? And the response was, I'll tell you as soon as I find out. No, I saw that. Yeah, That yeah. was actually authentic. Yeah, oh, yeah. my God. But given the fact the internet's been off, I think we've all been a, le- a, le- a bit less sarcastic and ironic. I had, I've had a wonderful day. It turns out that the people who harass me on the internet most are apparently Optus users. 
because I've had a really pleasant day on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Threads, and Blue Sky, and the other one, Mastodon. <laughs> and, you know, it's been really – Instagram, you know. Yeah. It's been really pleasant. Of course, this we're sort of joking about it, but this has some major implications and, and has caused some major issues. For example, uh, all of the hospitals in Victoria – uh, use Optus for their landlines, for their mobile phones. Uh, thankfully, not all for their internal communication systems or the electronic medical record systems. But to communicate in and out of hospitals has been a real uh, problem. It's been a nightmare. Uh, there's been government services that have been shut down. Services Australia, I think it was, you were saying, Van? Yeah, um, Workforce Australia. Workforce no, Australia. Yep, um, government departments have been... Very heavily affected in South Australia. Apparently, most government departments use Optus as their contractor. Yeah. And Peter Melanowskis was like, "Yeah, no," and was like, "Yeah, we're going to be switching our service to Telstra in a number of key areas." I mean, it is extraordinary the kind of stories that people have been telling. So I asked my various platforms if who had been affected by the Optus outage, and uh, some of the stories were really upsetting. There was a father who could not contact his daughter who's currently in hospital because of the outage. Um, other things that people have learned, the Guardian reported people's households going crazy because they used automatic pet feeders and the pet feeders didn't work and the cats were screaming and waking them up, which is how they found out about it. But other things like a lot of emergency relief teachers mm. didn't get phoned this morning because they were uncontactable, thank you, opters. And so you're going to have schools with kids running all over the shop without teachers coming in to service them and people missing out on days of work because they can't be contacted to work. And there's been a situation with the trains. People had ridiculous yep. train delays because trains were using the Optus system. I mean, it's made us all realise how dependent we are well, on I, this fairly disastrous private company for services that make, oh, I don't know, all of society funny. Well, I mean, when I did finally get to do a meeting this afternoon, uh, one of the people in the meeting said that they were impacted because they had gotten up early uh, and gone for a jog, which is very uh, keen in my view. But nonetheless, that's something people do is go for jogs. Uh, and their house has an electronic uh, like keypad lock and it has to be connected to Wi-Fi or a 3G or 4G backup. Oh, no. And because they were with Optus, they were locked out of their house. They could not get back into their house. Now, that, I mean, that's a sort of, um, you know, that's a very sort of middle-class problem to have an electronic lock that locks you out. But that's how dependent we can become on this one service provider. It's And quite frankly, their response has been pretty poor. Oh, yeah. Triple- I don't want to focus on exclusively middle-class problems. No. Let's focus on some working class problems. So delivery drivers lost their routes and their map itinerary. Yeah. So that's one. Uh, then you had um, somebody who needed to look up a word in the dictionary and could and couldn't because they've been they've become dependent on using dictionaries online to physically go down to a bookstore. Presumably, this person works in editing. If that yeah. is just into words, which I obviously support. I mean, you had uh, school emergency funds didn't work. Yeah. Parents couldn't contact their children at school. 
Children couldn't contact their parents. Well, people couldn't well. contact their children in hospitals. Yeah. They yeah. couldn't ring through to a hospital. Line. Absolutely. Other people who were trying to get help from various hospitals tried to ring Epworth Hospital in Melbourne. No answer. People who were supposed to work from home today who had to just, like, turn up at the office unannounced to get any work done. Um, my governor number, I couldn't connect. Kids call messaging services down. Uni advising of other services down. Medical clinic answering services disrupted. It's pretty full on. And, and we should be really clear, like even some of the triple zero uh, services were disrupted uh, as well. And the response from Optus, again, has been really unsatisfactory. You said it before. The CEO sort of said, we'll let you know when we know. Uh, at one point, there was some number going around that they had tried something like 20 different um, attempts to fix the problem but still hadn't even identified the problem. Uh, here we are even now. Uh, you know, recording, having to tether to a Telstra service because our Optus Wi-Fi has just completely spat the dummy. Obviously, things are still not right. Um, people have said things like, oh, you know, we should all sell out of Optus shares. Well, the, the sad reality, friends, who think that that's a solution in this case is that Optus is owned by Singtel, which is a Singaporean company. It's listed on the Singapore Stock Exchange. And uh, its share price is down uh, around 5% uh, in, in daily trade there. There's still a few hours of trade, I think, in Singapore to go. Look, this has been an absolute horror show followed by a horror show for Optus. They obviously had the data breach uh, uh, not so long ago. Their response to that was hugely unsatisfactory. It, you've got to start to question about how public services work and what are key uh, public infrastructure services. The Communications Workers Union has come out and described it as a disgrace, I believe. Yep, and I'd also like to do a big shout-out to a member of the executive team at Optus. Let no one forget Gladys Berger-Clean, the uh, former Premier of New South Wales who was found guilty of serious corrupt conduct um, in that uh, ICAC investigation. Um, well, uh, Gladys, of course, her appointment to a senior role at Optus was lauded by the CEO despite the corruption finding uh, and, and who said uh, the appointment of Berger Clinton was defended. And, look, I'm quite sure that Gladys Berger Clinton wasn't the one eating cookies in the server room that got the crumbs into the machines. I'm quite sure she didn't ram any switches with her face or go, what does this button do? But, you know, it just says a lot about the kind of corporate judgment exercised by the leadership at Optus that not only have they had a major data leak, I mean, that only happened last year, yeah. the Optus leak, when people had all their information, end up on the dark web for sale, fantastic. Uh, you know, these massive outages which are causing, oh, I don't know. Chaos. Chaos, public transport disaster, health disasters, school disasters, absolutely an axe through public infrastructure well done. Um, obviously, there has been enormous costs to small business. There are places that couldn't open today mm. because they're dependent on the, um, Optus the Optus network for their IT infrastructure. Uh, there were an amazing set of text messages from the, from the Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland, on Twitter today about encouraging people to, and I quote, keep receipts 
about and evidence and evidence mm, about mm. what they went through today, the amount of money their business lost to keep a record, so it could be lodged with the ombudsman. And the ombudsman has come out and said, absolutely, people are entitled to compensation for the money that they've lost today. But the really funny thing about Michelle Rowland's tweets is that people in public office can't speak in the vernacular with the frankness that they might in a personal conversation. Yeah. And if, if you understand that as the, as the construct that we understand of political communications, that you are to speak politely and officially at all times, one can only presume the level of invective um, from Michelle Rowland to the, the Optus senior management today. Like in, in, in political terms, it's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to rip your arms from your body and shove your mutilated limbs up your nose unless you get this back on immediately. For a minister to come out and say, keep the receipts so you can pursue compensation is like, yeah, by the way, I'm starting a land war. Like it was unambiguous to those of us who study political speech. Yeah, look, it was pretty fun. And I want to just give a shout-out to every every worker and every union member who has been impacted by this today because we still don't know the full impacts. Um, you know, Van, you've put a call out on social media to see, you know, to gather stories from people who have been impacted. We've covered off some of those sort of headline things, but there will be people who have definitely lost a day's pay, possibly more. They may have lost whole contracts. All those emergency teachers. There's all sorts of things. You know, if you, you know, Part of the reason we always encourage people to join your union is because you don't know what the future holds. We are living in an interdependent society and interdependent economic models. And when something like this happens, being able to rely on the collective, even if it's after the fact, so that you've got someone you can go to, like your union, like your delegate. The infrastructure of protection. And like your organiser to say, hey, it wasn't my fault that I couldn't get to work, I shouldn't be docked that day, but whatever it might be, you know, if you go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, you can join your union online. You know, as I said, the communications workers union has already come out and said this is a disgrace. Absolute disgrace. It, it shows a level of contempt, I think, that some of these major corporations have for their responsibility. Oh, it's just like stopped working. That's basically the defence. It just like stopped working. We're not sure how. I think Wilcox did, uh, I think Kevin Wilcox did a cartoon today. I think it was Wilcox and somebody else, I apologise. But it was at, at Optus headquarters and with one of the executives say to the other, maybe just scream it out the window. <sighs> because how do you call anyone if you're Optus? Like this is what I found really funny about the idea of the Optus CEO doing press calls, I was like, is she with Telstra? Like how can anyone call her? Yeah. Or did she have to physically go to a press office? Well, this is one of the things that I found. That's what I'm trying to work out. Like how did she do press call? Well, one of the things that I found really disturbing about all of this is that at one point, uh, and it was on um, Twitter, uh, I refused to call it the other thing, um, they were, Optus was advising people if they needed to call triple zero, to go and get a device from a friend or neighbour uh, on a different network to make that call. That, 
Firstly, if you don't have coverage, you're not going to have seen that advice. So again, may as well just be screaming it out the window. But secondly, that should not be how the critical infrastructure that is required to save people's lives operates, as in we have to rely on a friend or neighbor's phone. Firstly, a friend or neighbor has to be home. Secondly, they also shouldn't be with Optus. Like it's it's so many variables when the whole idea of triple zero emergency line is that it is accessible. It doesn't require multiple variables. If somebody is in a desperate life-threatening situation, whether that's a fire, a heart attack, stroke, you know, a knife-wielding maniac. An accident. Any of those things. I mean, we live in the country. Like accidents happen around here because people are using tools and fencing and cutting down and like all of these things. It is terrifying. So the good news is Michelle Rowland announced that uh, a protocol had been activated uh, to ensure that people who need to call triple zero from Optus phones could would be camping on um, networks provided by other providers, so people would be able to get through. But that's not everywhere. Like yeah. Optus has coverage, and so, like this is the problem. And it's the conflicting advice too, right? Like in these situations. You know, we've been very fortunate in that we've not had a day where there has been an axe building maniac or the house has caught fire or the cars rolled over, right? Not in this street. So we haven't had the need to do that, to access that. But if you're in that situation and you've got your provider telling you, go and find a neighbour. Except you don't know that because how would you know? Because your phone's not working. Right. So it, it... this is exactly the same problem of communication that the communication company Optus had around the data hack. The information is not clear. It's not concise. It, it's not in line with what government is saying. They seem to be on the defensive as well. And you can't have millions of customers impacted who then in turn have millions more people impacted and just kind of brush it off as, oh, look, the, you know, you can't have a thick shake at McDonald's because our soft serve machine is not working. When that happens, people get a bit annoyed, but they go, oh, I won't get the thick shake then or I won't get the soft serve. When the phone system is down for 18 hours and they say, now we've heard, it could be days before it's actually up and running and stable in all the ways it was still, before. According to the last news report I read, they're, they're still not entirely sure what happened. Some IT people from Cloudflare uh, think that it might be the same um, issue that Facebook had. Remember when Facebook and Instagram WhatsApp, WhatsApp, WhatsApp went down a few years ago? Yeah. And they were down for hours and nobody could work out why and it turned out to be a configuration issue. They think another company, by the way, not Optus, yeah. whose phones are clearly working, they've given interviews saying based on what they've observed and the kind of, you know, pings they've got from their network service, that might be what's going on. But Optus going, we're not sure, we're trying to fix it. Mm, it's a little bit hard. Is just kind of staggering. Can I just say, Ben, this is a pretty compelling argument for why essential services should be under state control. Absolutely. Like we used to have democratic control over these processes. So if something like this happened, we could threaten blue murder of <laughs> governments and say this is your responsibility, you need to invest in this to fix it, and we as a democratic population will make a decision on how you do that with more mm. investment or infrastructure as a higher political priority. 
you know, because these services have all been outsourced, because Telstra doesn't belong to Australians anymore, it belongs to whoever can afford to buy shares in Telstra. Optus literally belongs to Singtel and is the only way you can own a piece of Optus is by owning a piece of Singtel, which you can only buy from the Singaporean Stock Exchange. Oh, well, fabulous. So Optus is absolutely not under Australian control. And we can engage in some kind of free market fantasy and go, oh, well, people will just like go to another service and, you know, that's, it was so, everybody's just going to go to a, another service overnight. What's that going to look like, everyone? But even, but even then, even then, even if that fantasy were real, the way these networks are set up now, right, is that they are, they are actually also the wholesale supplier. So Optus isn't just out for Optus customers, as in households or hospitals or schools, as important as those are, it's also out for other service providers that use the Optus network. So, for example, and I don't know all of them, but I am aware that Dodo, for example, which is a service, it's a low-cost service that a lot of people use, has been out as well. And, of course, they're even further down the list to be fixed. So, again, you've got this, this free market kind of system has actually embedded a class system within it. So if you're if you're a low-income person and you're like, look, we need internet because so much that stuff is done on the internet, we get the cheapest possible one, we're going to be down the list when it comes to the network provider fixing our problems because they're going to start with their high-end customers, their government customers, their corporate customers. We all know that's where they're going to start and they're going to work their way through their own customers. Then they're going to work their way through the higher end of their subsidiary customers, and eventually they'll get to the very lowest income. But again people. and again and again, we see the failure of privatisation. Yeah. You know, what are the biggest basket case companies in Australia at the moment? Oh, Qantas and Optus. Oh, Qantas and Optus. They're absolute basket cases. Like, what is going on at Qantas exactly? Like, carnage, you know, price gouging, totally irresponsible governance. Like, absolutely appalling. It's an essential service. Like, connecting cities in a continental landmass the size of Australia should really be under government remit. That's why it was taken over by the government and made a government corporation in the first place. You know, the same with all manner of different services in Australia. Electricity, public transport. Like, these things have to be under state control so that there are systems and protocols that exist outside market forces. And so someone can be held accountable. And market punishment is not enough. Like, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's going to be a drop in the Singtel share price that we as Australians can't participate in unless we, you know, buy them from the Singapore Stock Exchange. Oh, well, you know, it will roll. It's like, really? Because they didn't last time. In corporate Australia, there tends to be a lot of failing upwards. Only in this, like, seriously, Gladys Berger-Clinton, oh, we're going to defend her participation in the executive team at Optus. And it's like that alone should probably preclude you if you have somebody on your executive team who's been found by a corruption investigation to have engaged in, and I quote, seriously corrupt conduct. Yeah. Seriously corrupt conduct that made them resign as Premier of New South Wales. Like, if you are making corporate governance decisions like that, 
maybe essential services should not be under your purview. Maybe the services you provide are beyond you because people are dependent on them to reach their children. Can you imagine being a kid who, like, broke their arm at school today who was told by teachers, oh, look, we're trying to call your parents, but they're not answering? Like... I mean, some of the... And this is what I mean. We haven't heard all the stories yet because there will be stories... Uh, that are out there. And if you've got some, do send them to us. You can email the week on Wednesday at gmail.com. Leave stories on our social media pages. Facebook is always good for this too. Like it is, it, it, it is just so outrageous. And one of the things, can I just say, Van, to totally, obviously, I totally agree with your point around essential services should be under, um, the purview democratic control, democratic control. And one of the things that just blew my mind today, was watching the coalition try and somehow make this uh, a Labor government um, uh, problem uh, as though somehow or another uh, Michelle Rowland wasn't doing enough or, or somehow or another the government should do more. This criminal party that has sold off, tried to sell off every single thing that hasn't been nailed down to the point where, to the, to the point where New South Wales Labor has enshrined that no more things in New South Wales will be sold off because the previous Liberal government of New South Wales sold off so much stuff. You know, the the Liberal National Coalition are absolutely the party of privatisation. They've tried to privatise Sydney Water. They've tried to privatise every road in every capital city when they've been in power at a state level, at a federal level, they outsourced public service jobs. They gave more money to the big four global consulting firms than any government in Australian history, some of which turned out to be some of the most corrupt behaviour we've seen come through the PwC tax worlds, obviously. Like this idea that Peter Dutton and his, his cadre of cronies. cronies would somehow or another have done a better job given that if they had their way... They'd all go to Hawaii? Well, I mean, just think about the NBN. Tony Abbott didn't want the NBN to exist. He didn't want the NBN to exist. The NBN, a government corporation, government company that was going to revolutionise the way we did these sorts of services. We would have all been provided these sorts of services through a government-run company. Now, the NBN does exist and it does provide some services directly, but ultimately, Tony Abbott got into power at just the right time to completely upend that and essentially make it a, a shadow of what it could oh, have been. Because it was just a video delivery, just an entertainment delivery system. These people have no idea. No, they have no idea. They have absolutely no idea and they don't want to have any idea and if they had any idea that we wouldn't be in this mess. Like in, in the 1980s, you know, just this free market, like, and this is I'm going to do a segue into the next mm. story. Like we are living in the consequences of a massive economic ideological experiment that took place in the 1980s, which is, of course, the Milton Friedman free market ideology of neoliberalism, which is privatise everything, the market will find its own course like a river. Mm. You know, if we um, just let people make decisions about what they want to buy and what they want to sell, everything will find its level. And, of course, the example I always use is Chile because in Chile in 1973 there was a convenient assassination of the uh, 
um, socialist president Allende, yes, who was shot the day he was elected. What a coincidence. And, of course, the government takeover by the forces of Augusto Pinochet, who is just like a, a, with a gross far-right military junta and just horrific, horrific things. Murdered people, tortured Murdered people, people, disappeared people. Cut the hands off Victor Yara and nailed, who was a folk singer and nailed them to the front of uh, a stadium where he used to play. Like absolutely disgusting. People still kidnapped children of leftists and gave them to right-wing families to raise, things like that. So that's what happened in Chile. And at the time there wasn't the condemnation that there should have been. Mm. And, uh, of course, international condemnation because under Pinochet they committed to uh, implementing neoliberal economic policy, mm. that that was going to pull Chile out of poverty and everything was going to be great. Chile is not a... Economic power. It is not. And it is not a thriving uh, free market utopia. That is not where it charts. And yet they were given free reign with a dictatorial junta government armed to the teeth and prepared to murder people to institute that kind of economic policy. So that's the extreme example. And countries around the world drank the Kool-Aid about Milton Friedman and, mm. yes, yes, freedom to choose is, you know, one of his books. I can, You know, it is horrendous. Some of you may or may not remember Tim Wilson. He was a Liberal mm. MP mm. for mm. a little while and he got sworn into Parliament on a copy of... Um, I think it was Freedom to Choose, one of the Freedman books instead of the Bible, what a class act, you know. And this, and when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister, he was going to run the country for the freedom individual in the market. Like, yeah, that's that was right. the, okay, Malcolm. Okay. I mean, Malcolm is a little bit redeemed and he certainly uh, ripped the ABC a new one. I don't know if you heard this today, but Albanese is in China repairing yeah. trade relations that are going to make mm. some Australians very prosperous. These are the relationships that were mm. shredded by Sinfolk, mm. Scott Morrison, and it's been a hugely successful diplomatic. Well, just on that, from from what I've read, and, and if people have different numbers, let me know, but uh, last year our exports of things like barley, uh, various grains, uh, basically farmed products to China was somewhere around the 66 million mark. And now uh, this year, just in, since the relationship has been repaired, they're already past the 2.6 billion mark. So that's the kind of difference government policy and international relations make. Like it's a huge gap. And and look, those numbers are a little bit rubbery because this is not a well scripted show, but. They are. That's the kind of quantum we're talking about. And I absolutely don't want anyone to think that Ben and I are huge fans of the Chinese Communist Party because no. obviously we love democracy and we think that's a priority for any yeah. sovereign nation to realise. But certainly, it's like <laughs> the degradation in relations um, spearheaded by Scott Morrison has been somewhat repaired. But Albanese got asked a, a question by an ABC journalist and Malcolm Turnbull was asked about it. Well, my Liberal Prime Minister mm-hmm. was asked about it on Radio National this morning and he condemned it as like a ridiculous gotcha question and why was the ABC not focusing on the incredible success of Albanese and Penny Wong in China and, you know, what that's done for Australian standing and trade relationships and the rest of it. And it was really interesting to hear Malcolm Turnbull take that line and really tells you a lot about... Well, it also, just very briefly, I think it also speaks to the fact that Labor has a very different approach. You know, the media still talks about these things as free trade agreements. 
which they, they, they never are, right? Like they, they are not free trade agreements. A free trade agreement would be. And I'm on record as a public advocate, outspoken against the chapter agreement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I participated in campaigns at various levels to say the chapter agreement was bad for a whole variety of reasons, mostly around uh, the transportation of human beings, the undermining of democratic rights, uh, the undermining of the sovereignty of Australia, those sorts of things. Lack of independent trade unions. All those sorts of things. Um, but we need to stop referring to these things as free trade agreements. That's not what they are. They're bilateral trade agreements. Sometimes they're multilateral trade agreements, but they are agreements based on what different countries are prepared to accept. For example, Don Farrell, who is the trade minister. An absolutely genius appointment. If you've mm-hmm. ever known anything about Don Farrell, the idea you would make him trade minister is just the most logical choice ever. Went to Japan and said to the EU, we're not going to sign a quote-unquote free trade agreement with you because you will not give up protection of your agricultural sector and agriculture is a big part of what we want to export. We're very efficient at it. Australia agriculture is highly efficient. That's why it's in such demand. That's why we get bilateral trade agreements with places like the US, Japan, China, because we can produce large amounts of food, far more than we need here domestically. There's lots of intricacies to that. But I think it's really, really important that we understand that this free market utopia, even in the concept of the language that we use around trade, free trade, is not real. It's not real. It's not free trade. It's always a series of agreements. And it's always so funny, especially when Americans talk about free trade because they're one of the most absolutely restrictive trading international partners in the world. And in terms of explaining where this sits with our ideology, I mean, Mm. Ben and I obviously do this podcast because we're democratic socialists and we just totally love to talk about it. That doesn't mean we're anti-trade and it doesn't mean that we're protectionists. Mm. In fact, Ben and I love globalised trade, obviously with labour standards and human rights and environmental protections and, you know, positive social and economic outcomes built into those agreements, obviously. Which you can do, by the way. Which you can do. And there's, in fact, entire trading regimes that are based around those principles. But one of the reasons why we support trade is because it brings about peace. Because countries who trade with one another develop relationships develop exchanges not just of commodities but also of ideas also cultural practice become familiar with one another and have this amazing habit of not bombing one another yeah it's crazy yeah and look particularly i mean this is particularly true of democracies uh but even non-democratic states china hasn't gone to war with the United States. It's a huge trading partner. Hasn't gone to war with Australia. When people talk about China going to war with Australia, I always go, why? They can just buy whatever, like they can buy the stuff from us. Even even if we slapped a tariff on iron ore or beef or something, like they just buy it anyway. Like the cost of war is so extraordinary. And yes, dictators and and autocrats are more likely to go to war because they are less likely to be concerned about the human cost, the financial cost. And there are no constraints of democratic forces. Yeah, but China is not this homogenous, single autocratic entity that people seem to understand. This episode is not going to be all about China, by the way. But 
it's important that we understand that this kind of free market ideological positioning is not universal. It's not actually real. It doesn't actually exist in the way that it gets talked about in the media, about free trade agreements and free markets. Market forces. That's always my favourite. These are not things that exist. Economies are individual people and companies, which are made up of individual people, interacting and deciding to make deals with one another in a framework of rules and regulations set by the government. Now, hopefully that government is democratic. If it's not, the government's still going to set the rules, whatever they might be, and those rules determine how much you can trade, what you can trade. You know, you can't go down the street and buy a whole huge pile of illicit substances because there are laws around that. Now, in the context of this week's uh, announcements from the Reserve Bank, this becomes really, really important. And I think this is what you were saying before, Ben. Yeah. That the Friedmanite view was that you would have an independent central bank that would essentially determine the value of your uh, value of money in your society. And it would use interest rates to control inflation and essentially force an underclass of people to always be unemployed or that it would always be an underclass of unemployed people. It doesn't always have to be the same people, but it would always be this underclass. That would be a drag on wage growth. That would allow corporations to determine uh, the wage settings and it would diminish the influence of workers over the economic system. That's part of that ideology. Central banks around the world have, for the last 18 months, of course, been jacking up interest rates, and Australia is no different. There's been 100, before yesterday, there had been a 114% increase in the cost of the average mortgage in Australia. Now, we've talked about this before, right? And Phil Lowe, the once high priest of the RBA, is gone. And now Michelle, whose last name escapes me, has been uh, made high priestess. It's a very much a new RBA with an old RBA attitude. Interest rates. Michelle Bullock. Michelle Bullock. Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Yeah. Um, so Michelle Bullock is the governor of the Reserve Bank who used to work under Phil Lowe, right? This is not some revolutionary step change in the way the Reserve Bank is going to work. And there was lots of speculation. Um, Stephen Kukoulos, um, Alan Koller, um, Greg Jericho, uh, lots of people were out there saying, actually, the, there's lots of indicators that say inflation has peaked and even though employment is still relatively strong and wages are going up a bit, the factors that are driving inflation, which is always the excuse for putting up interest rates, right? Inflation is the excuse. And it used to be, under the Friedmanite era, inflation was driven by unfair wage demands, by excessive wage demands. Excessive wage demands. How dare those working people who generate our wealth want a share of it? The reality is that that has not been the case for 30 plus years. That wages have been neoliberalism is alive. Neoliberalism is alive. Wages have been going backwards in real terms. Productivity has been going up compared to wages. There has been 
no signs or signals that the justification that was used to bring in neoliberalism, that was used to jack up interest rates to control this quote-unquote problem of inflation exists anymore. Yes, there is some inflationary issues. There are petrol costs more than probably, quote-unquote, it should. There are wars going on around the world. That always drives up the price of oil, right? These things are transitory, even if it's a long war. A lot of the things that are still going up are essential to human survival. Food. Food, housing, but even food costs are starting to come down, right? Some of the other indicators, those other macro things that you would go, structurally, what is it that we're concerned about? If you think about inflation, what's driving inflation? Well, you don't have enough workers. Workers might get too much power in the economy and they might demand excessive wage increases. They might. Above what their productivity is. Gosh. We are so far from that. In fact, even Michelle Bullock said yesterday that there is no problem with wage inflation. Labor market's a little bit tight. Numbers came out today, year on year, job ads, that is the number of jobs available in Australia in some in the big states, Victoria and New South Wales, down by more than 20%, down by more than 20% year on year. We're talking single month declines of five, six, seven percent. That's huge. That this whole idea of labor market tightness is nonsense. Every other central bank in the major economies has put a pause on raising interest rates. It was the smallest, smallest uptick in inflation in Australia because we import almost all of our oil. That's the reality. We do. We import almost all of our fuel oil. What's that? That's an awesome reason to back renewables, Ben. Absolutely. Absolutely. We should should be thinking about renewable power generation as if our lives depended on it because they do. Because they do. We We have had inflation in house prices because we have needed more people. We have reopened after COVID. We have had a long-term shortage of housing stock. It has been a long-term coalition strategy to deny public housing, to deny social housing, to to force people into a buy or rent scenario because they know that if people are in a buy or rent scenario, historically, they lean more liberal. Not everyone, but historically, they have lent more liberal because they built this narrative around neoliberalism and interest rates and Labor being bad on that. And, you know, John Howard, oh, John Howard helped all these people buy their own homes. This narrative, this political narrative that has nothing to do with economics is still infecting a key part of our uh, economic infrastructure in the form of the Reserve Bank. Now, Ben, you raised with me before that there are some people who have pointed out uh, a... uh, a never used uh, power of the treasurer. Yeah, so the Greens have been talking about this. And hello, Greens. Thank you so much for threatening to block more housing bills. Oh, housing's such a crisis. Instead of like really doing any meaningful work around the Yes campaign and the referendum, they went door knocking to talk about housing. And uh, wouldn't you know, just this week, they sent a letter to Tim Pallas, who is the treasurer of Victoria saying that they intend to block um, Victorian Labor government's uh, taxes on vacant residential land and short-stay properties. So 
Victorian Labor is trying to open up the yep. housing market by putting taxes on vacant land, by putting taxes on short-stay properties, and the Greens are saying no. Because there's always a reason. There's always a reason they come up with good block housing policy. It is amazing. At the same time, so those two, two measures that are designed to reduce the cost of housing and would have an impact on reducing inflation because housing, whether you're renting or buying, is part of the inflationary basket. So they're essentially happy to contribute to higher living costs for people. That's the reality of that. At the same time, federally, the Greens have turned around and said, well, Jim Chalmers as treasurer has the power to override the Reserve Bank. He has the power to. Yeah, just like the Governor-General had the power to override the will of the people in the Democratic election in 1975. Should he have done it? Did it have terrible repercussions? Why, yes, it did lead to the election of Australia's first explicitly neoliberal liberal government under Malcolm Fraser. Thank we, you. John Kerr, actually, no thank you. We should be really, really clear. While I disagree with the latest increase and a number of the increases that have occurred over the last 18 months, individual increases, you know, this one's up by 0.25%. If you were going to go up, you, I can't understand why you go up by more than 0.1%. I wouldn't have gone up at all. Anyway, these are... They have their reasons. I disagree with them. If you want to publicly campaign for Ben to be on the board of the Reserve Bank, you should because I think it'd be great. There are there are as many opinions on this as there are people who, you know, like a drink. Except there's like a homogenised neoliberal opinion, which is there's only one solution to anything and that's to increase unemployment. Like That's basically it. And they've been harping on about this for 40 years. And that's... And we're going to come to the unemployment piece in a minute. But if you have a treasurer, whether it's Jim Chalmers or Josh Frydenberg, who overrides the Reserve Bank, what that does do is remember before when we were talking about how economies are people uh, making decisions to interact with one another uh, and corporations are just groups of people making decisions to interact with one another. Well, nations are even bigger groups of people deciding to interact with one another. And if... A government decides to override what is supposedly an independent process that has been in place for 35, 40 years and does so without a clear, rational, explainable reason, those individuals start to panic. They start to panic and they start to do irrational things because what they see is Jim Chalmers or Josh Frydenberg, whichever treasurer you like, I'm not even going to suggest the idea that Angus Taylor will ever be Treasurer of Australia because that just seems unfathomable to me. I actually think it's more likely that Josh Frydenberg, who's not even in Parliament, would become Treasurer again before Angus Taylor. But nonetheless, that kind of panic creates huge economic problems. And we've seen this happen in other places around the world, right? Do you mean that things happen in other countries? Yeah. So in other countries in the world where the government actively intervenes in the central bank policy without clear rationale, without it going, the reason we're doing this is because the central bank has jacked up interest rates by 10% when all the economics points to this or whatever. They've done it because they're under a dictatorship or they've had military coup or whatever it is. And it, and it is generally non-democratic countries, although from time to time, possibly democratic ones as well. You have capital flight. So com- companies go, this is an unstable place to do business. You have massive unemployment really rapidly because those companies have withdrawn from, from the marketplace. 
You have people going, my money's not safe. So they run to the bank and take out as much of their money as they possibly can. And inflation goes bananas because suddenly the price of bananas goes through the roof because who knows what the money's going to be worth tomorrow because who knows who's in charge of setting the price of money. Oh, so you're saying the Greens don't have a magic bullet solution to the economic challenges of our times? Oh, Ben, I'm really good for that. There is no magic bullet solution. Is there a need for long-term grinding reform to how we think about economics? Absolutely. That's why we started this podcast. Will there be a magic wave of the wand in the first 18 months of the first term of a Labor government after a decade of incredibly neoliberal coalition prime ministers and treasurers who wanted a reserve bank to do everything Friedmanite that it possibly could, who was more than happy and made it government policy to have low wages, who was more than happy to have 5 6% unemployment. When unemployment in this country was at 6%, they were doing nothing to stop that. What they were doing was punishing unemployed people for a systemic construct that they had built. The non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Exactly. So the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment is what neoliberal economists sort of agree, it's, and it's literally a vibe, is what they think unemployment probably should be to take heat out of the economy and reduce inflation. So, And, and it's literally a vibe. Because they can't give you a number. They they can't give you a number. And it changes. should be, and it's sort of really subjective. But what they think maybe is the right number to take heat out of the economy actually means a community of human beings who are punished for being unemployed in a structuralised economic situation that has been created for them to be unemployed in. So the people who create the unemployment deliberately because it's a vibe, because, oh, man, inflation, they uh, they also tend to be from the same ideological school that will tell you that you're a scrounger or you're yeah. a welfare queen, depending on what country you're in. And, by the way, in the 1970s when neoliberalism was getting going, I love telling this story, the think tanks, all the neoliberal think tanks throughout the world all chat to one another. There had a big conference in London recently where a whole bunch of liberal Front benches right now. Michaela Cash, I think, was there. Angus Taylor was there. Um, they have one of these big love-ins in London to get their neoliberal on. Yeah. Oh yeah, I too like kicking poor people. Whee! It was really yeah. So they all talk to one another, and in the 1970s, the problem with a lot of communities in the post-war era, mm. because you had generations alive who had survived the Second World War mm. and understood the importance of stable states, equalised economic opportunity and community building. I mean, I know, crazy. I mean, we had full employment policy mm. in this country, which Robert Menzies, even though he was Prime Minister of Australia for a 1,000 years, never got rid of because it was so popular for mm. employment. They devised all these schemes about how you could poison the reputation of unemployed people and divorce the notion of unemployment from being a social responsibility to an individual problem, you know, and they came up with terms to use. They literally brainstormed culturally specific ideas that played off different kinds of of cultural antagonisms in order to demonise unemployed people, which is why unemployed people were called welfare queens in the United States Mm -hmm. because it was emasculating and you could particularly target 
you know, mm. like the Hispanic and black communities with the sort of language of emasculation. Mm. Um, in Britain, of course, you had scroungers that conjured up ideas of like the perpetual underclass mm. poor, like and a Dickens. Big, yeah, 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 you know, and, and usury. And mm. in Australia, they went with dog bludgers. And bludgers were originally in Australian um, vernacular. A bludger was like a, a pimp, somebody who exploited um, a, a, a sex worker in mm. a sort of controlling, abusive relationship. That's uh, to bludge someone, to hit them with a bludgeon. Mm-hmm. That's where the term came from. So they had, so they worked it out. They did some focus grouping. Yeah. They literally focus grouped. Oh, who would you feel more negative towards? And they inserted those terms into the discourse. In Australia, one of the people they identified that Protestant churches, because they're mm. as Ben knows, Ben is a Baptist. It's still funny to me. And in Protestant churches, you know, where the culture is about hard work mm. and the redemptive power of labour and, you know, the Protestant work ethic, they literally targeted advocates within the church to talk about doll bludging and, you know, this epidemic of idleness sweeping through young people. At the same time, there was a completely unnatural unemployment crisis mm. because of the oil shocks and oil boycotts mm. that were inflating the price of oil in the 1970s. It is absolutely extraordinary they got away with it. But these terms entered targeted specific cultural communities, played to their prejudices, and created they created a demon that didn't exist until they thought one up. And that's when you start getting all these welfare punishing policies mm. and the drift away from full un- from full employment and this blaming this individualization of unemployment when it's really a structural problem mm. and they and don't ever think they don't chat they like Ben said they have conferences they have there was parties one in the they last get together and, you know talk about you know what they privatized this week and it was I mean even yesterday the the uh, non accelerating uh, rate of inflation the vibe. The vibe, the number for the vibe changed again. So Michelle Bullock said, "Oh, we expect that uh, the uh, the rate of unemployment will no longer be need to be four point five. It'll probably only need to be four point two five. Now that is still tens of thousands more people unemployed than are than are employed now. They are driving an agenda to make more people unemployed, and and we know." We know because the research has been very clear from the OECD, from the EU, from the Australia Institute, from the Centre for Future Work, from um, the ACTU, from the ACTU, from parts of America. Per capita. Per capita. All these institutions have clearly found that the driving force of inflation over the last 18 months in the Western world has been profiteering, has been Companies that are already profitable taking more profit than they need to, increasing prices to get more profit, to get more advantage. This has increased bonuses, it's increased dividends. What it, and what it's done is it's created a false sense of inflation. So we've gone from a Friedmanite, free market, um, dystopian kind of vision where you had to fight the demon of inflation by creating more unemployed people uh, and giving corporations, basically saying to corporations, look, we're going to increase the cost of money, so you're going to have to make tough decisions, and if it's not going to be profitable and productive, you can't do it anymore, and that means some people are going to have to go. That was kind of the theory of why you would have uh, increased 
interest rates because it increased the cost of borrowing. We've gone from that to, and you know, workers are driving up the cost because they're asking for unreasonable wage demands, which are in excess of inflation, to a situation where wages have fallen in real terms over a long period of time. Profits have increased in real terms over a long period of time. The gap between uh, wages and profits has grown exponentially. The gap between executive salaries and average worker salaries has grown exponentially. And But how are you going to afford and training that racing car to your penthouse department? But, but Van, the point I'm trying to make here is that the tool that is now being used is the same tool, right? Because that's all they know how to do. And so the justification around it, it's murkier and murkier and murkier and murkier. The people who can least afford to carry the cost economically are now being forced to carry the cost. You know, you can understand. I mean, I am I am 100% pro-worker, but I can understand in a situation where workers were demanding 20% pay increases and productivity was going up 2%, and because they did have the power to shut down that industry if they didn't get that, you had friction in the economy and you needed circuit breakers. And the accords that Hawke brought in were a different mechanism than some other parts of the world used to try and do that, to say, actually, what we're going to do here is we're going to have Medicare, we're going to have super, and we're going to have- Free tax. Free tax. We're going to have a whole range of other things to change the the mix of costs that the household has to bear so that you can have a 5% pay increase and a 5% increase in productivity rather than this. And children can have higher educational vocational choice and you don't have to worry about getting sick, destroying your life, like- so you pull a number of levers. You pull a number of levers. And in fact, the welfare state is the best set of economic levers there's ever been because it means, you know, as we like to say in this house, socialism doesn't limit how far you can fly. It limits how far you can fall. And if you want to go off and make a bazillion dollars, you know Joe Biden said this the other day, you know, if you want to make a billion dollars, go ahead and make a billion dollars. We just want you to pay more tax. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And, and by the way, do you know the economy that has rebounded the best from COVID and the best from inflation? Bidenomics. I know, it's Bidenomics. It's old school, like post-war, well, even yeah. pre-war FDR style building. It's economic building. It's building industries, targeted employment, you know, rejuvenating towns. Like the the actual trickle down doesn't come from corporations. It comes from target government investments in infrastructure building capacity. What the United States is doing around the CHIPS Act, which is them making more microchips mm. and driving more innovation, localised production of microchips, that's future-focused industry policy. What they're doing with renewables, and they're doing massive renewables projects in mm. the United mm. States, absolutely, that is putting them in the front seat for the next great economic boom, which is around renewables, renewables infrastructure, and taking a leading position on it. And before we segue to the good news about America, let me just finish this little section by saying there's always calls for government to do more when people feel there's a cost of living crunch. And I understand why that is. We've been crunched ourselves. Right. And family members have grown up like that and it's, and it's not an easy time. And this is why things like making 
the Medicare, tripling the Medicare incentive is important because it makes bulk billing more available. It's why cheaper medicines is important. It's why free TAFE is important. It's government targeting support. At one point... Which is exactly what Biden is doing. At one point, there was some discussion that the government should be writing checks and sending them out to every household. That's not the answer when you when you have a reserve bank that says there's an inflation problem, right? And there are genuine some there are some genuine supply problems, mostly around skilled trades, mostly around capacity, because we've had such a long-term degradation of our capacity. You have targeted investments, childcare, the childcare rebate. None of this has been perfect. Don't get me wrong, none of it has happened perfectly, nor has it happened perfectly in the US. There have been issues with a legacy infrastructure. I mean, I'd still rather live here than there. Can I be and, and one of the good things, the recent announcement of 3,000 Services Australia jobs going into the public service to help fix what is an under-resourced, understaffed public service that provides services directly to Australians in need when they need it. Such a huge and important announcement by Bill Shorten. And I want to do a shout-out to Bill Shorten and Peter Khalil, who's the member for Wills, for the best political symbol of the week was they had a robot yeah. that I think was made out of cardboard and they put it in a bin to signify the end of Robotech and it was kind of hilarious and I do seriously recommend you Google that image. But then we need to move on to the good news because I did say at the start this would be a short episode but... It, to just prove how little we script this, we've already gone for over an hour. So I've got to say, baby, when you start talking about macroeconomics, I mean... I just get on a roll. Time means nothing to me. Everyone must be so sick of it by now. Um, I've got to... Uh, my happy news is about what happened in the United States over the past 24 hours. So there's always an election somewhere yeah. in America. And the election that was taking place... Um, yes, well, yesterday, today, uh, which I have managed to somehow displace from my phone, um, the election that was taking place was a ballot measure, like a constitutional mm. change to the Constitution of the State of, of Ohio. There was also an election for the lower house and upper house in the state of uh, Virginia. Virginia which has a Republican governor. Obviously, Ohio has a Republican governor. They're totally reprehensible. Mike DeWine, oh, my God. Um, a man made completely of nightmare parts. Um, Glenn Youngkin is pretty terrifying as well, the Republican governor of Virginia. He wanted, he, he's been mooting a presidential run. And it, a lot of the Republicans are hoping that Donald Trump gets convicted on his 11 billion indictments so they can run for president. Glenn Youngkin is certainly one of those people. Um, and also... Uh, they had an election. There was an election in Rhode Island, a special election there. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also a, an election, a state house election, including for the governor of Kentucky. Well, and there was another one in California, I think. The Democrats absolutely smashed the Republicans. Yay. So despite the fact that Kentucky is what they call a deep red state, that mm. is Trump country, it's where Mitch McConnell, who's the Republican leader in the Senate, is like a lost turtle. 40 million years old um, and just, you know, nothing in this country will change. That guy, he um, was very close to the GOP presidential candidate who was also endorsed by Trump and the Republican lost, despite the fact it is deep red Trump country. Mm. Andy Bashir, who's the Democratic governor, increased his vote, increased his majority. Um, the guy who got elected in Rhode Island is the first black American to get elected 
from to Congress from Rhode Island, which is fantastic. Democrats obviously held in California. I don't think anybody's surprised there. But they held in Virginia, so they will keep control of the state house, and they prevailed in the ballot measure in Ohio. Because the ballot measure in Ohio, which a lot of people are attributing more generally, like to the mood amongst voters in America at the moment, was on abortion rights. So Mike DeWine, the weirdo mm. who is governor of like seriously, seriously made a video with his wife, which was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. It literally looked like an ad for American Horror Story and they were just in a room together. Um, the, it was a massive, they have been trying to restrict abortion rights. Ohio is obviously where the pregnant 10-year-old, the girl who'd been oh, raped, right, couldn't right. get an abortion. So there was a movement in Ohio to constitutionally enshrine the right of women to abortion on de- like abortion on demand under the care of physician in the state constitution. Mm-hmm. And the de- and the Republicans were like, oh, it's radical, it's section mm-hmm. baby murder, whatever. And they smashed the Republicans. So that measure went through like two-thirds of the vote. And looking at some of the dem- demographics, like uh, women voters between the ages of 80, 18 and 24, like 85% of them voted for this measure. And again and again and again, whenever there is an issue around abortion on the ballot in America, the women turn out and the women prevail. We saw that happen in Kansas, another different mm. state where abortion is legal and these restrictions didn't go through because the populace revolted. Yunkin, the governor of Virginia, had made a big issue of abortion, how he was going yeah. to restrict access. He's lost, he's mm. not going to have control of the state house. Andy Bashir in Kentucky, even in Kentucky, he was like, well, I'm a pro-choice candidate again and again and again. And this is important because there was a very disturbing New York Times poll out this week that said Trump was leading um, Biden 49 to 45 in the popular vote, which is terrifying on every level. And there's a discussion now that, you know, like polls are always right until they aren't. Yeah. And that, you know, this is incredibly good news for the Democrats and for progressive forces in the United States because abortion is on the ballot. Abortion is always on the ballot. If there's a Republican running, that is a Republican who's committed to a base, who believe in absolutely no exceptions, not for rape, not for incest, not for children. There have been interviews with Republicans who are like, well, I would hope a 10-year-old wouldn't get pregnant in the first place. And it's like, but we already know this happens because men rape children and what are we doing? Yeah. So that's really good news. That is really good news. It's really important. I mean, not the bit about no, no. it's being far but it's, freaks who want legal control over women's bodies. That's really bad. But them being beaten, though, is good news. And, and that's why democracy is good, because while you've got democracy, you can beat those guys. That's right. It's, it's so important that democracy thrive. You know, Van, this is episode 155 of the week on Wednesday. Uh, you know, we are now taking some breaks from time to time. But fundamentally, we do at least one show a week. Sometimes we do two. We hear from listeners. We get people like, they share. You know, the the growth of this podcast continues to blow my mind. Uh, This is now one of the biggest podcast markets in the world, in Australia, and yet the week on Wednesday, which we are- scrappy little podcast, which we are literally doing from our kitchen table- is still a top 40, top 50 podcast on Apple Podcasts uh, in news and politics. And it's because, yes, people like, they share. It'll always be free to listen to, always free to download. But there are people who go to www.buymeacoffee.com 
slash week on Wednesday, who do make a financial contribution, whether it's a once-off or a dollar a week. And these people's contribution ensures the show can remain free for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And and it all goes into the show. Not a penny of that comes to us. Uh, we put money into this ourselves, obviously, as well. And we know not everybody can, and we appreciate those who do. And as a, as a sign of our appreciation for those who do, who give 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month, our Extend the Reach give 10, our Kajo give 20, we get Van, the great and glorious, to read out the names of our Kajo supporters and our Extend the Reach. Jimmy Lillicole, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina, Bali, Janice Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Jessica Davey, 26, Andy Stavard, Ginley, Jason Harris, Mega Itchy Saurus, Matrices, Anna Coleman, Oprah Skinner, 888, Roman Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning from Longman, Colin Kelly, Ailey Vance, uh, Mary M. Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva, Boris, Kate, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Adjit Carney, Roman Punchrain, Veteran, Jenny Forster, Seven, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, No Relation, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Jiggles, I Don't Have Twitter, My Name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Through McCabe, Marissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren Ashman, Van Jane, Arundaman, John Chapman, Peter Bath, Louise Watson, slash Red, White, Blue, uh, Red, White, and Blue, Blue, Red, White, Blue, Blue. Yeah. <sighs> Extend the reach support us. It's very hot in this house. Helen, Delahaye, Kim Murray, Bardwell, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Murray, Rosie Elliott, Lara, at Robert Northfield 1, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Dorena, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Remy Slap, Cameron, Troy Dragon, Daniel Crazy, Kezar, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, Anna Yurin, Melanie Denning, Jodie Adon on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Eastwood, Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beckham Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita Hannah, Murray, Louise Walker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hyndon at Gal Vest, Craig Martin, trainer Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew Ivers Spillett, Peter OC, Sam Hadidkit, Patterson, Punk and Basher, Patty Wood at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Bomegut at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Mum, Bulgoya, Matthew Case, Mikey Mark, Adrian Valente, Zurich Street, Carrydale 68, Frank Nahus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bat. I think it's Pauline Bait. Pauline Bait. It says Bat. Oh. E. But Pauline, <laughs> I love bats, so you're in. Look, if you've enjoyed our podcast, don't forget to tune in to our friends at Socially Democratic where Stephen Donnelly and his crew interview. Talk about how the sausage is made. And they interview people from all over the world. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, if you want to hear about these things from more than just me and Van, they have a smorgasbord of interesting guests. And we will be an entree course, hopefully, uh, towards the end of the year where we'll do a wrap-up of the year 2023 because we are now rapidly approaching the end of the year. So remember, like, share, comment, leave a review, talk about these issues, join your union. If you can support and you want to support, get onto that Buy Me A Coffee page. We appreciate all of your help and support. Until next time, love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. Bye. Bye.